Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And this week, we are speaking to Dr. Joel Kalvismaki, managing editor of Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks, and author of a book called The Theology of Arithmetic, Number Symbolism in Platonism and Early Christianity. In short, a man who knows a thing or two about all things numerical in the ancient world, and especially of interest to us, the traditions numerical, which don't involve doing arithmetic, but involve other kinds of activity. Joel, thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. Glad to be here. So because we're in a discussion of Pythagoras after Pythagoras and Pythagoreanism after Pythagoreanism, I really wanted to get to the bottom of a number of what you can sometimes call esoteric and sometimes not different types of numerical stuff. It's actually difficult even to define what we mean by this stuff, but you know it when you see it. And I've sort of divided it up in my mind into three basic typological parts, which we can just talk about. One of them is what's often called gematria. So taking the uh, numerical value of a word, counting it up and saying, oh, it's 53. And this other word is 53. And that means these words are somehow connected in an occult manner and similar activities. Then we have divinatory numerology, which is various ways of using numbers to tell the future, tell about someone's fate and so on. And last but not least, the tradition widely known as arithmology, which is looking at, I guess what you'd say, the, the meanings of numbers. All of these are very different, but all of them have one th- at least one thing in common. They all end up being associated by someone at some point with the Pythagorean tradition. So let's talk about them. Let's get the divinatory numerology out of the way first, because in a way, this stuff is the most straightforward. And it's also not so much associated with the name of Pythagoras, though it does eventually become so. But seemingly in classical antiquity, it's much more associated with the name Hermes and Nekepso and Petosiris and this sort of astrological tradition. So just to, to back up a little bit, if we think about divinatory practices in in the main, we can send our mental gaze all the way back to the pre-Homeric times with um, things like looking at entrails, the way uh, a, a liver gets um, displayed in, in the, the bowl that you've just poured the sacrifice into, or the way the birds are flying, and other such maybe natural phenomena, if you like. When we think about how numbers might have been used for, for predictive use, we find that it appears later relative to the Homeric tradition. We oftentimes don't have dates for these things, um, but they emerge in the discourses. Well, the, the, the particular types of numerological uh, prognostication that I've studied tend to crop up with a, 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 a sharp vengeance in the second century uh, CE. This would be in the time of the um, so-called Gnostics, Valentinianism and a number of other groups that made numbers a, a central part of of their worldview. And the numerological techniques that appear don't have necessarily any inherent connection to this gnosis. Rather, they are indulging in this much older impulse to tell the future, to find out who's going to win in a contest between two people. And then those traditions co-opt names from the past to provide the the kind of mystical aura one needs to to make this happen 
Right. So people like the Marcosians and the Valentinians are doing all kinds of interesting and wacky and wonderful things with numbers. And what kind of tradition are they attaching it to? So you, you've mentioned the Valentinians and the, and the Marcosians. Uh, Valentinism is a, a cluster of movements that appeared in the late second century and the, in the wake of a teacher named Valentinus, whose writings are pretty few and far between. We don't have much. Uh, there's a treatise in the Nag Hammadi texts that we can um, ascribe to him. But the groups that followed in his wake were really quite creative. None of them except one, what you've called the Marcosians, these are people who followed Marcus, so-called Magus, by his opponents, who took the numerological aspects of Valentinism, which which were there in Coet, and, and he ramped it up and made it something quite significant. Although there's very little evidence that he's actually doing prognostication, the kinds of approach he's taking are reminiscent of these numerological techniques that are appearing at around the same time. So it's very easy to infer that there must be some kind of connection we can't really nail down exactly what that connection would have been. But we see, in particularly in the writings of a third century author, a man named Hippolytus, um, some very, very early reflections on the techniques that would have been used to do prognostic numerology. This is uh, techniques of trying to figure out who the outcomes of two things. And one of the earliest techniques that he preserves is later in the manuscript tradition widely ascribed to Pythagoras. And it is often prefaced by a letter from Pythagoras to somebody named Telavis. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a little table that's called the, the little Pythagorean plinth that, that's included with it. And you are basically um, inducted in this world where Pythagoras tells Telegis that it allows somebody to find out in the case of two people, they have to have personal names, which one is going to win in an outcome. It's unclear exactly what context it would be, whether it's sports or law, but uh, some kind of personal combat. Mm -hmm. And you take the names and you perform something that we commonly call gematria on them to get a, a number. Then you take the number, which is usually you know, most most names when they get converted into numbers in Greek wind up being in the hundreds. So you reduce that mod nine. So you f- reduce it to some number from one to 10. Right. And you use that to determine who is going to beat whom based on their mod number, basically. So if you had a name that added up to nine after having gone through these combinations, presumably you would always win in everything you did unless you met up with another nine. Is that right? It's not that always that the highest wins. It's, ah. it, there, there are many different results of this. Oftentimes it's a question of whether it's odd against even, mm. even against even, odd against odd. So actually the question of odd or even numbers is, is more important than the, the amount. As in geomancy, which we'll doubtless be getting to. Um, mm. Now, there's already a lot in what you've said that I'd like to unpick. Let's let's mention this term gematria, because okay. this seems to be the general term for this approach to words. And just to lay it out very clearly for people who are completely unaware of what we're talking about, in an alphabetic language prior to the Middle Ages, 
the way you would write numbers is using letters. So in Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, etc. going along. It follows from that that any word that's written down has a numerical value. You can add up because you use letters as numbers. So people start to play with this. And in Greek, this is not called gematria. Gematria is a term which we get from the Hebrew tradition. So because the Kabbalists in the later Middle Ages become very famous for doing this, the term gematria gets taken from them and applied backwards onto this Greek tradition. Is that basically what's happened? That's that's the the nub of it. That's that's correct. Um, and the, since we're talking about the term um, gematria or gematria in the English language is based on, as you say, the, this Hebrew tradition. That term goes back to a Talmudic writing, which is circa fourth fifth century. We're not quite too sure, but in the context, that Hebrew word seems to be a calc on the Greek word uh, geometry. Uh, that that's the origin of the term that we're using. It it's not necessarily rooted in the terminology that they themselves might have been using. Right, and maybe you could say something about what you call the Pacific tradition. I think what what kind of terminology are the Greeks using, and what kind of Greek precedents do we have for this process of adding words up before Absolutely. it starts to get esoteric and you know, yeah. meaningful. Yeah, let's get esoteric. Uh, so the, the term that is most commonly used by the Greeks themselves who are using this is psephos or isopsephi. Isopsephia, psephos. In so, its original, psephos just meant a vote or a pebble or a count. But in this technical use, this prognostic use, it, it takes on a completely new meaning, but that's the word that they adopt. So it's from the, the voting vocabulary of Right. Their so um, people who are thinking those primitive Greeks with their using the word pebble to mean number, they're obviously counting with pebbles, how pathetic, should just reflect on the fact that calculus means little pebble in Latin. So we're still using this, the Latin form of this, um, <laughs> this way of thinking about numbers for a very advanced form of uh, mathematical activity, the calculus. Mm. So you've got this idea of isopsephi. What is isopsephi? Exactly. That means equal pebble or equal count. It is equal count. And it's probably best to, to back up a little bit. And um, I'd actually like to, to maybe do a little bit um, of a larger scale historical backdrop because many people believe that this psephic or gematric technique goes back to biblical times. And no scholarship has been adequately done on the topic um, I wish I could refer to a study that, that shows what I'm about to say, but I, I can't, and so it's based just on my own inference. But gematria, I've not seen any evidence that it predates the first century CE. And I we're talking about the we're talking about the Hebrew tradition here. To be every clear. tradition, right? Every tradition. Uh, if if I might use an analogy, do you you may recall a time when um, calculators were introduced to schools. And as a schoolboy, you found out that if you turned the calculator upside down, you could spell some interesting words, yeah. like goose or other such words. And hell was very we popular. Found out that we could actually play games and tell jokes and such matters. But think about if if you tried to tell those jokes thirty years before, when the, when the calculator hadn't been invented yet. Well, it would have made no sense. No, you, you couldn't have either told the joke or 
if you did, maybe you, maybe you had this idea of of the calculator coming, and and so you told this joke. You would have to explain it to your audience, or be trapped in in your own little world. Right. Well, that situation is analogous to the one for gematria, Aesop's Effie, because you can't have the technique we're talking about without the technology in place and having it widespread. And the technology in question? The technology in question is the use of the entire alphabet for the digits, for the numbers. Hmm. The earliest and most famous Greek numerical systems are... Uh, the so-called acrophonic numeral systems. And they're very much like Roman numerals. That is, there would be a, a pi or a p for, for pente, five, and you would have a he for heliades. And, and these would be arranged much like Roman numerals. Not every letter was a, a number, and oftentimes you took a letter, cut it in half to represent a number. Right. That was Athenian tradition, and, and there were different traditions for numbering that existed. There's a scholar named Chrysomalis who's traced the number system that we're talking about to this early period, but as the invention of a local city-state, and it didn't have widespread currency. And I think there's good internal evidence for that, because the system we're talking about is as follows. The, the Greek alphabet, as we have it, has 24 letters. Those 24 letters get divided into three sections. And the notion was, hey, let's assign everything in the first third of the alphabet to the digits, the second third of the alphabet to the tens, and the third uh, part of the alphabet to the hundreds. Now, if you do your math, that, that means you have only eight for each row, and you need nine of them. So in the case of the units, the uh, letter that fell out of the Greek alphabet called the digamma was incorporated as the numeral six. It's, it's the equivalent to the Hebrew vav. And in the second row, you have something called the kappa that gets included for the numeral 80. And then in the hundreds, you get something that's sometimes called a, a sampi for the numeral 900. And these are archaic letters that we don't even know really what their names are because nobody used them enough to, to actually call them what they were. I have evidence that in the second, third century, they called these things as a pisima, that is, they're signs of something, and they were just taken to be numerals that are alphabetic, but we don't know what the original alphabetic function was. Got it. A, a bit like mathematicians today use Greek letters to symbolize complex, irrational numbers and stuff like that. Not too far off, yeah. So th this local numeric system, uh, Chris Amalis has argued, made its way to Alexandria in the post-Alexander the Great world and eventually somehow found currency in the greater Roman world. We see this Greek numerical system becoming widespread only around the late 1st century BCE, Right. And and then in the first century CE, it seems to have supplanted the acrophonic numeral system. One can see intrinsically why it would be uh, such an advantage, because you can actually start doing sums Place value. In, in a vertical fashion. Notation. You can actually, yeah, it's it's much easier to to use a digit-based number system than than an acrophonic or something like the Roman numerals, and it's about from this point that we see 
in literature attestations of the Pacific technique, but in almost all the cases, the author needs to draw attention to his use of that system, of that technique. Right. My favorite and one of the earliest examples of this is uh, from a poet by the name of Leonidas. He flourished around the time of the reign of Nero, and he started off, interestingly, as an astrologer. Mm -hmm. But he, he turned his hand to the writing of epigrams, and he wrote a number of epigrams where if you took the letters in each line and added them up, they would be equal to the accompanying line in the couplet. Right. So in one case, he wrote um, a little poem that says, Is pron ena psifoisen isazete u dio diois ugar which in translation reads, one line equals one line in tallies, not two in couplets, for I no longer cherish prolix writing. So he's being... Each of those two lines adds up to the same sum. And he points to this in the terminology itself. Sefoisin isazete. In psephos, we're talking about psephi here, isazete equal. And so you get here the, the very earliest reference to a technique that perhaps Leonidas himself invented right. to equal in, in counting. That's, that's very Elizabethan, the way he's, he's being self-referential and sort of um, playing with meaning, form, and number all at the same time, and being very witty and clever. Right. And um, we have attestation that this technique became a, a literary parlor game, if you like. Mm. Plutarch, in a very interesting set of books called Table Talk, discusses this and, and has his characters um, indulge a bit in it. It's something that you would do after, um, after drinks and um, at dinner and, and try to match each other's wit. The earliest attestation for this technique seems to be in uh, riddling, puzzle-making, and uh, that tradition uh, seems to go on for quite a bit. I've, I've encountered an inscription that dates to about the 6th century in which a person wrote his own epitaph in this ipsocephic technique. And he wrote it in two columns, each column an isopsephic line corresponding to a variation on his name. Oh, so it's an anagram and isopsephic. And he worked really hard at it because you you can read it in both horizontally and vertically with different effects. What? <laughs> That's amazing. So um, just to back up for anyone who's lost, let me summarize what you've just said and tell me if I've got it right. We don't see this gematria practice anywhere in the Mediterranean. That's not to say that it couldn't have existed, but we have no reason to think it did exist. And in fact, we have a very strong reason to think it didn't, because you can only do it when you start to have an alphabetic system that corresponds to numbers in a straightforward way. Not like the Roman numerals where you have M, C, M, L, X, X. That, that's letters, but it's not one letter, one number. It's something else. A precondition for a gematria is to have this one-to-one -one correspondence between numbers and letters, digital style, basically. And this 
gets spread through the Greek world, seemingly in the later Hellenistic period. So that's when it becomes widespread enough that people maybe can say, read something from another city-state with some numbers jotted on it and be able to read it because everyone's using the same system more or less at that stage. That's the sum of it. And Greek lent itself easily to this technique, whereas other comparable alphabets didn't so easily. Hebrew, for instance, has only 22 letters, Mm. which means you have to come up not only with the three uh, episema that Greek did, but you have to find two more. And so the earliest evidence we have for a comparable numeral system in Hebrew has to double up on those final letters. It, it, it's clearly a, a jury-rigged system. They're, they're trying to, to shoehorn it into the Greek model. The same with Latin. There's actually a couple of medieval techniques that try to do for Latin what the Greeks did for Greek, uh, but they're inconsistent with each other. And that's just a witness to how difficult it is to come up with such a system and not make it look like you're just imitating what, what the Greeks have already done. So this is leading up to um, something that may shock some people, which is that your work concludes, based on the evidence, that the Hebrew world, the Hebrew tradition, will have taken this practice from the Greeks. That's correct. So we have Greek gematria long before we have Hebrew gematria. Although it's not, maybe it's not gematria at this point because it's still playful. It's not getting esoteric yet, really. Yet. Except in, insofar as riddles are just esoteric. Let's get esoteric then. When do we start to see isopsephic stuff that means something deeper? I would say that you first see this in the uh, book of Revelation in a very elusive manner. And this is perhaps one of the more famous instances of, of Sefi, where we're told that the name of the beast is 666. It's been a point of endless speculation. It does add up to Nero's name, does it not? If you it use... adds up to many people's names. Yeah. And, <laughs> and actually, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, one of my favorite authors from the second century, goes through a whole list of people whose names could be added up to the number. And he attests to a variation in the verse that says it's not 666, but 616. Wow. So Irenaeus, incidentally, the guy who is probably more responsible than any other single person for establishing what is canonical in the mm. Christian scriptures, is working with variant texts. So... Yes. Hmm. And you might think, well, that... It's an outlier. Surely he, he's wrong about this. But we actually have a papyrus that surfaced that shows this variation, 616, because it uses this uh, numerical system in Greek. And apparently the Xi, which would have been used for 60, um, and the Yoda for 10, well, I'm, I'm not going to say which one predates the other, but, but one could see how a smudged Yoda might be taken as a Xi or vice versa. Right. Yeah, goodness gracious. Divinely guaranteed pure transmission of texts seems to be in danger here, but never mind, we'll move on. But even here, I would argue that what you're seeing is is participating not in esotericism, but in the riddle culture Right. that would have been familiar from, from Nero. We have attestations even from uh, the graffiti in Pompeii that this this uh, literary activity was going on with uh, with numerical values of people's names. And we see the, a turn to um, 
the true esoteric, the, the idea that somehow there's real hidden meaning that's genuine and true and beyond this world only, I believe, in the second century. Second century CE. And where do we find it? You mentioned Hippolytus earlier. Hippolytus is a little bit later. He's attesting, though, to this. Um, I think that we don't even have to get there. We have to make a stop at Irenaeus again, who attests to the Valentinian practice. Right. I've mentioned a bit of the, the background with, with the Valentinians and, and Marcus Magus, and it's Marcus who dolges to um, a great degree in, in the uh, gematric practice or the esopsephic practice of, that we're talking about. Right. And it's metaphysically significant, right? And it's metaphysically significant. It's tethered to this notion that is unique to the Valentinians that the, the Godhead can be arranged in sets of aeons that have numerical significance in their, in their proportions. The most famous core of this is what's called the Ogdoad, which is this notion that the aeons form four couples. And these four couples beget other aeons, which in the full Valentinia system includes uh, a decad and a dodecad, and you eventually get up to a total of 30 aeons that are in these arrangements that are reminiscent of much later stuff uh, that we're familiar with. It must have been novel at the time, but kind of what I think of as a, a geometrical philosophy or geometrical theology using mythological techniques to try to explain the origins of the universe. And these are cast as part of a drama because one of these aeons, the 30th aeon, goes off the rails, heads off the ranch, and ruptures the, the universe and is the explanation for the fall. Right. And the ensuing drama is about how those 30 aeons, the fullness, the pleroma, tries to rescue that fallen aeon and everything that's happened as a result of it and restore the unity that was, that was original. This is a theme you'll find in, in a number of the, the texts that we call Gnostic that show up in the, the uh, Nag Hammadi corpus. Hmm. But it's exposed right there in, in Irenaeus. And for a large part of Irenaeus, we can trust he's not, well, he probably is making some things up, but we have no reason to believe that the main features are being made up. He, the interpretation, obviously, uh, is something we, we might bring into question. But we've seen from the Nag Hammadi texts at least partial corroboration of, of some of these accounts. So so we know that there's there's something substantive and true despite Irenaeus's hostility toward the system that he he's um, failing called to expose. So we've got two different texts in the extended Jewish-Christian tradition. We've got the Book of Revelations, and then we've got the Valentinian movement. And these seemingly, maybe in an increasing level of seriousness, we're looking at number as a I mean, in, in the book of Revelations, it doesn't seem to be there's any metaphysical principles being invoked. But in by the time we get to the Valentinians, we have number as metaphysics or num number as metaphysically significant and some beginning hint, seemingly, of the approach to the world as a kind of mathematical text that you can decode. Mm -hmm. And the 
the underlying roots of reality as math- mathematical text that can be decoded, which is a, a very significant step in the evolution of what you might call esoteric approaches to number. And um, we then also have, bring us back to the kind of more divinatory stuff we were, we were talking about earlier in the second century, Artemidorus, whose mm. book um, is the earliest extant divinatory dream interpretation manual, which we will be covering in the Schwepp in not too distant future, in which he sometimes takes um, the, he'll say something like, you know, if you dream of a, an old woman, it means you're going to die because the numerical value of the word for old woman is equal to the numerical value for the word for death. This sort of thing appears mm-hmm. here and there in his work. So is this mm-hmm. another important kind of very early attestation to this sort of approach? Yeah, that seems to be the other way. Uh, well, I've mentioned one way that that gematria was taken seriously was in this um, theological theological manner, which is trying to use the technique to adumbrate the universe, both right. physical and metaphysical. The other way is, as you've just noted, a more practical one, which is how do I find out uh, what's going to happen? How do I interpret a dream? How do I do this? So there's a utilitarian aspect to which this technique is is used. I've been through a a number of manuscript catalogs and have found a number of different types of techniques, uh, a dozen or so major techniques that are distinct from each other, have their own minor variations, but are attested in dozens of manuscripts that um, are still extant. Right. But this, this material is late medieval East Roman material, right? It remains to be, it, it is definitely second century and later, but where exactly in that it should be dated, I think much yet needs to be done on that. You've really? mentioned geomancy, and I haven't seen any evidence that geomancy predates interaction with Islam. In my mind, geomancy uh, seems to be something derived from the Arabic uh, Islamic tradition. Yep, I've, I've heard 10th century North African folk practice, which was taken on by Islam made more literate, astrologized, and moved into the tradition that way. But um, again, doubtless, there's more work to be done. Um, but the uh, Pythagoras to Tell of Geese technique that I mentioned, that's certainly second century. And also the whole question about lucky and unlucky days, that seems to be very old as well and probably predates the second century and is rooted in, say, um, a much simpler notion that is that there are, are days that are lucky and not but it, it, it gets put into this more Pythagorean mold and the days of the, of the month are allotted to the realms of life and death and given, given more interpretive apparatus. Before we move on to um, arithmology, I would love it if you can cast any light on when does this stuff get called Pythagorean, right? So... Um, no one's reading Book of Revelations and going, ah, the Apostle John is obviously a Pythagorean. But at some point in classical antiquity, this kind of speculation where you're, um, or maybe it's later than classical antiquity, maybe it's medieval, mm-hmm. but this kind of speculation where you're adding up the numbers of things and saying, ah, this is, of course, adds up to 763, which we know is significant because of blah, 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 blah. And thus, the author is a Pythagorean. Can you cast any light on when this process happens? Of, of the three things that we've ident- that we've talked about, the literary use, well, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any evidence that that ever gets classified as Pythagorean. Right. 
because it, there's no metaphysical apparatus that for the theological, uh, I believe that it was seen as Pythagorean, at least by its opponents at the get-go, tied up with this notion, well, the Irenaeus really characterizes these Valentinians as being Platonists or, or uh, philosophers, that primarily interested in, in a kind of Pythagoreanism. I can't immediately put my finger on quotations from Irenaeus that justify that, but he, he really does seem to call them this. So already in the second century, you've got a, an observer from a theological context going, look at all this number stuff they're doing. They're Pythagoreans. Yes, um, absolutely. And that, I think, is, is a natural reaction because Pythagoras, as seen in earlier episodes, really comes to life again as a numerically astute figure in the first century BCE, around the same time that Varro is writing and, and some other very interesting figures. And it's almost like a completely new kind of Pythagoras emerges from, from this movement. So that image of Pythagoras would have been at the forefront of anyone's mind in the second century CE when, uh, when Irenaeus is writing. Gotcha. Okay, before we move on, do you think we should ditch the term gematria in this context and just start talking about psephi, even though it's a bit hard for the English tongue to get around? <laughs> just because we it's... Can. It's not, it seems like this is breaking, breaking news here on the Schwepp that we need to look at the primacy of the Greek tradition of this sort of stuff and look at the Hebrew tradition, which does become very prominent, as almost certainly following on the, the lead of the Greeks, or at least coming after the, the Greek stuff. Um, so did it ever make sense to use a Hebrew term that flourished in the late Middle Ages, projecting it well, back on Greek material? To be fair, we, we see a phenomenon and sometimes we don't know what to call it. This is true for the, the numerals. Like, why should we call the Sampi a Sampi? It, it's attested only, I think, in the 17th or 18th century as that term. Right. Some people will say, oh, it was called the Parikuisma, which is another hapax legomena. Uh, it's a word that appears in Greek only once, but there's no evidence from that one passage that, that the author is actually referring to that numeral. Right. So we, we sometimes are by necessity, forced to resort to a term that we later find out is anachronistic. Whether we should hang on to it or not, well, no, at least we can communicate through an anachronistic term what we mean. So I, I'm not opposed to using gematria, but every time I use it, I, I do try to point out that that is a later medieval term for something that had terminology earlier on. So I, I will often try to use Cephi and, and Gematria interchangeably. I use Aesop Cephi only in, if it's in the context of, of where you were trying to match values. Right, the epigrammatic poetry and that sort of thing. Correct. Great. So there you go. Not everyone is pedantic as I am, and you're happy to take a kind of whatever works approach to this, which is very commendable. Now, another word that you may actually have more of a problem with is the term arithmology. So let's get into arithmology, which I guess is the other great tradition of Pythagorean, in quotation marks, number stuff that shows up in antiquity. Oh, yes. So let's start with terminology. Arithmology itself is uh, a late word. Arithmologia appears, I believe, in only an 18th century manuscript at the beginning. And it's in a treatise, a manuscript treatise that deals with numbered proverbs. In other words, here are four things you need to be thinking about. Kind of like the, the book of Proverbs. Three things I've seen in this and four I have done, and you list the three or four things. 
but it was uh, popularized by a scholar named Delat, and it has become this standing term for a genre. Mm. And to that, I I probably don't have any real objections because I don't really have an alternative proposal um, because we don't know what people would have called this genre back when it was in use. The genre is that of a compilation of lore surrounding numbers. Most oftentimes, these arithmological treatises went through the numbers 1 through 10 and systematically or semi-systematically compiled different ways in which that number can be interpreted. It includes symbolism of uh, relating to mythology, to the intrinsic um, arithmetical properties of these numbers, to ideas of virtue and justice, to animals, to uh, geometry. It's it's really reflective of a larger encyclopedic trend that emerges in around the first, second, third century, where um, different kinds of lore were compiled in a systematic fashion. A very nice example would be um, the so-called physiologus tradition. This is a, a tradition that goes through the animal kingdom and goes animal by animal and indicates what the virtues are of that animal, what its vices are, what it symbolizes. And because these handbooks are compiling things, they uh, wind up encoding contradictions or, or seeming inconsistencies. For instance, we learned that seven is a perfect number, but we also read under the term six that it's a perfect number. And in fact, you don't have to go far before you find out that there are about three or four numbers that have been called perfect by uh, Greek authors. So the arithmological tradition is, is an attempt to, to pull together lots of different strands, some of which is definitely Pythagorean, but some of which is perhaps built into the folklore that is just part of human existence. Right. So things like we have 10 fingers, and that's probably why we have a base 10 system is that is that the kind of stuff you mean that yeah and other other natural phenomena would would fall into this i think um it's difficult to get around seven being somehow related to quartering up the the lunar period the lunar period of 29 and a half roughly days doesn't lend itself easily to any kind of easy numerical classification so the tendency we have is to simplify a bit. And so 28 becomes a symbol of of the moon and the lunar period, even though there are no 28-day uh, lunar cycles. And so the week being uh, a quarter of that becomes a typological representation of the, the four phases of the moon. Right. First quarter to full to third quarter to, to um, new moon. Hmm. And those are likely to be part of just human observation and engagement with, with the natural world, because we see these kinds of allocations in, in Egyptian and Mesopotamian society. You know, it's, there, there's something natural in dividing the, the world up into 12 periods, because a star would be invisible only for about one twelfth of the year. And so you've got this natural way to, to divide up the universe mm. that is pretty close to what the moon is doing in the same period. 
And uh, we don't need to ascribe that to Pythagoras. Um, it, we see it in other cultures. Yeah, well, we but certainly... But the Pythagorean stuff is, is certainly a major component of these arithmological treatises. So by, by the Pythagorean stuff, do you mean things like the preserved sayings of Pythagoras? Things like, what is justice? The Tetractus. Yes, the, the Tetractus would be, would be a component part. I would say also um, this notion of odd and even numbers having a symbolism beyond what they are to us. That is, you, you can you can see odd numbers as being male, even numbers as female. Right. And if you have dichotomies, paired dichotomies, you can associate odd numbers and even numbers with each side. This is attested in, in Aristotle. Yeah. and the, um, the table of opposites. The table of opposites. It's that That to me is certainly a part of the obviously late Pythagorean tradition, but Pythagoras nonetheless. So genuine early Pythagorean materials in some form or another getting mixed in with a lot of other stuff in this arithmological tradition. Now, That's right. what forms does the arithmological tradition take? I'm familiar with the text, the Theologumena Arithmeticis, which is actually quite undateable, but draws on the work of Nicomachus of Gerasa, who is writing in the second century, I believe, and is a, a late antique text on the numbers one through nine, as you mentioned, and giving having basically a chapter for each number. So um, the three is the unity in multiplicity. It shows manifestation of the one. Um, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing. And then it moves on to four. And, you know, it, and as you say, it's very eclectic and sort of encyclopedic. But it obviously, as such, represents um, the tip of an iceberg of probably what was much a larger tradition. What else do we have in this tradition? Uh, yeah, the... Uh, the treatise you've chosen, the Theologumena Arithmeticis, is, is the perfect example because it, it's intact and complete, and it provides a window into this, this earlier period. We know that it draws from at least two other treatises. You've mentioned Nicomachus. The other one is by a um, third-century Christian bishop named Anatolius, who is also responsible for arguing for how Easter should be dated. Right, which has been was, a, a big problem in Christianity, even down to the modern period. Don't I know? Don't we know it? <laughs> um, but he seems to have been um, interested in, in this this kind of lore as well, and so he, he compiled things. We know that Varro, I mentioned um, so Varro, a Latin, a, Latin writer, a late wrote Republican, treatises that yeah. no longer exist, that that indulge in this in this tradition. And he seems to be dependent upon a treatise that's called the Anonymous Arithmologiae, for lack of a better term, doesn't survive anymore, but it seems to be dated around the first century, around the same time that Posidonius wrote. Posidonius, another first century BCE uh, figure who wrote on numerical lore, but in a tradition that seems to be not the, um, the uh, arithmologies that, that we're talking about. Leonid Mood, who's uh, written on the, the origins of this, and he traces things back all the way to Spusippus. And here we get into some, I hope, uh, familiar territory from earlier episodes. The nephew of, of Plato wrote treatises that seem to have done a, a very interesting mixture of the Platonic and Pythagorean traditions. I don't have much expertise in this area, so I'll, I'll refer you to, to Leonid's work, which is really, really quite good and, and is, is certainly a, a worthy successor to the work that Burkhardt's done. So, as so often, our ability to trace a tradition in 
what might be called the ancient extended Platonist tradition or Platonistic tradition, because so much of what we call Neo-Pythagorean philosophy, which we'll be covering in the next episode, is by a post-Burkert estimation, in fact, a form of Platonism. So much of our ability to assess this stuff is hampered by the fact that the works of the early academy don't survive, Spusippus and Xenocrates. And if we just came across a papyrus with a substantial piece of Spusippus or a substantial piece of Xenocrates, so many questions would be answered overnight about a lot of this stuff. Or would they? Dun, dun, dun. Well, we've been talking for about almost an hour, and you just said, or would they, which is such a perfect episode ender that I feel like I should take this opportunity to thank you very much, uh, Joel Kavismaki of Dumbarton Oaks. And I hope to have you on the Schwepp again to talk about your uh, fascinating work on this stuff in the early Christian tradition. But until that time, stay esoteric. Thank you. Th